These two chapters in the book of Revelation are really at the center of this book. Um, We start at chapter 4, we start a new cycle of visions. If you remember early on as we looked at Revelation, as we introduced it, we said it's not a chronological explanation of events, but it is a recurring set of visions, a recurring opening of windows where John sees and describes what he sees, and uh, it's like different camera angles that uh, show us different perspectives, and this kind of cycle of vision after vision after vision is marked by John saying, and then I saw, and then I saw. And this morning, uh, starting at chapter 4, going through to Revelation 16, is a fresh vision that John sees of heaven, of the heavenly realities. And we're going to be looking at that uh, together today. And and Revelation chapter 4 sets the stage, it sets the scene of this drama. And Revelation chapter 5 The drama takes place and uh, we see what happens there. So we have a vision of God's throne, a vision of God's throne and a vision of Christ. Now, how do you describe a heavenly vision? Just imagine for a moment that you were to go to an ancient tribe in the Amazonian jungle that is not part of kind of modern civilization, has not encountered Uh, electricity or the internet uh, still kind of live according to ancient practices. Imagine you learn their language and you went to them and and you tried to describe to them electricity or the internet. Uh, how How would you begin to do that? How would you describe to these people who have no concept, no language of what electricity is? You would perhaps describe it in ways that would speak into their customs or their cultures. You might say electricity is like the wind spirits that flow through the vines. You might say it, and that it flows so fast that it creates light like the sun. And, uh, and it's like the wind. You can't see it, but you can perceive it. Or it's, it's faster than the arrows that we shoot. Or how do you begin? And even as you've described it and said it's, it's like this and it's like that, How do you begin to conceptualize something that is way beyond our concept or our ability to understand? I think Rick Rick Warren once said that describing God in this way is like describing the internet to ants. I mean, we just can't conceive. And so we have to remember, if you remember our glasses that we talked about when we read a revelation that we put on these glasses and there's a couple of lenses that help us to see First of all, the lens of the Old Testament, that a lot of stuff that's described in Revelation and even today in Revelation 4 and 5 is taken from or picks up on images that are in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and in the Old Testament and and that are, are lifted again and used again by John. And the other lens of our glasses that we have to have on when we're reading Revelation is to remember that this is apocalyptic literature. It uses symbolism. It uses pictures. It's like an impressionist painting that you have to step back to see the big picture. And if you get too close and just look at the pixels or you won't really see the images. And we have to remember that there's a a lot of metaphors that are used that are not necessarily an actual depiction or 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 an actual description, but are a metaphorical, symbolic depiction of the truths of heaven. So what we're not getting here is a description of 
of what heaven looks like in that sense. But we are getting, an, in essence, a description of the glory and the wonder and the majesty of God and this open heaven that John sees. So we have to have our glasses on as we read. But we start the, uh, the, the chapter, chapter 4, uh, where John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. There was a poignant moment in the recent uh, burial service, the recent funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, where her, her crown and her scepter and the orb that represented her reign and her sovereignty where these were taken from her coffin and they were returned to the altar. Uh, they had been lent to her. This authority, this sovereignty, this rule, these dominions, they had been lent to her and death had now ended that reign. And that reign was finished. And this scepter, this orb, this crown was returned again to the altar to be conferred on another. And Psalm 45 verse 6 says, Your throne O oh God, is forever and ever a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And we have this vision here of one who is seated on a throne. And we are reminded throughout scripture that of his reign and of his dominion, there will be no end. And you remember that John is writing to a persecuted church who has had held up to them Caesars and uh, imperial power and the demand to bow down and declare that he is the everlasting king, Caesar is the everlasting king, to bow down and worship, to bring incense offerings to the imperial cult. You remember the persecution of the church and the churches that John is writing to? Last week we looked at some of the, uh, the, the temptation to compromise or the temptation uh, uh, to, to, to be lukewarm and or, or, or the, the conflict and the, and the persecution that they were, they were facing. But, but John is taking them heavenwards and he's showing them who really is on the throne. Remember that he is described as the Lord of the kings of the earth. He is the one who rules and reigns and will rule and reign forevermore. And so John begins to describe this throne in this heavenly scene and he does so by using descriptions to try and begin to earth some of the concepts that he's seeing. He says, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. There is a, a beauty here described with jewels and rainbows. Have you ever been to see the crown jewels in uh, the Tower of London? and watched uh, uh, and seen them in all their glory. They are quite a sight, and uh, you, they are all in glass cases, and there are different ways that you can walk past them, and there's a lot of security. As you look at these beautiful jewels and the light that reflects on them and their in, in, invaluable uh, cost. And here, uh, be beginning to describe what this throne room is like, John grasps at various jewels and and rainbows, and he's picking up from um, he's picking up from Isaiah six and Ezekiel one. In Isaiah six, 
uh, uh, Isaiah has a, has a vision of heaven, and he says in the year King Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord uh, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then in Ezekiel, uh, there's a lot of Ezekiel chapter 1 in, in these descriptions in Revelation 4 and 5, but Ezekiel has this vision of heaven, and he says, above this surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli, like a blue uh, stone. And on the throne high above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man from what appeared to be his waist up. He looked like gleaming amber, flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining like splendor. All around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. And when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground. And so John begins to describe the same thing, the rainbow, the beauty, the covenant love of God, the jewelry. And in essence, he's describing the ineffable beauty, the radiance of God's presence, the glory that when uh, Ezekiel saw it, saw this was, said this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord and when I saw it, I fell face down, which is what John did when he saw this amazing glory, the radiance of God's presence, like sparkling jewels and like the rainbows in the sky, he also fell down in worship. And so we have, we have the glory and the glorious presence of the Lord. And remember, these are metaphors and descriptions of what John is seeing, of the glory of the Lord. And then in verses 4 to 8, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit of God. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was, had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so we have the throne of God. And remember John is describing to these believers the throne room of heaven. He's describing the throne of God, the one who is at the very center and the one who is seated on the throne. And then he begins to describe, as he describes the radiance and the glory and the jewel-like uh, uh, presence of God and the, the rainbows that appear, he begins to describe these concentric circles of worship that are surrounding the throne. There are, there are 24 uh, elders who are, are seated and who, who worship. There are the four living creatures. Uh, and then beyond that, there are myriads of angels and as, as a stone, this is what uh, Craig Kirster says, as a stone cast into a pool creates waves that move outward, the presence of God on the throne creates waves of praise that begin with the four creatures 
beside the throne, then surge outward to a circle of elders, to myriads of angels, and finally to every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so that all creation joins in giving praise to God and the Lamb. Again, as I thought back to the amazing pageantry of Queen Elizabeth's burial, of, of, the, of the, the soldiers carrying the coffin, the, uh, the marching, the drum beating, uh, the pageantry, the pomp, the circumstance that, that, that really indicated that this is someone so very important, the sovereign who we are burying, who we are honoring, who, billions of people around the world watching and and as you move out from the family that walk behind the coffin and you move outwards and outwards, there are, there are all of these soldiers and all of these uh, people from the Commonwealth and, and all of those serving. And then, and then there are the people uh, lining the way and, and, there are the, and, the, and there is the constant drumbeat and the constant... And I, and I thought of this, this scene and, and then I think of this moment in, in heaven that John sees and as you start to move outwards you see just the kind of the, the waves of worship that emanate from the throne of God, the one who is ultimately the sovereign over all sovereigns, the throne that is above all thrones, and the worship that emanates from him. And there are 24 elders, and there's some debate about who these elders are. It could represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles and the church universal throughout the ages. Some people believe that they are angelic beings and that their job is to mediate the presence of God and to explain the vision to John. Uh, either way, we are not ultimately told by John who they are, uh, but they are there and they are worshipping God and they are lifting up the prayers of the saints like incense. And then the four living creatures, they describe and they put together the cherubim, the type of angels of Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10 and the seraphim of Isaiah chapter 6 that are describing these angelic beings. The same description is given in Ezekiel of these four faces, of these four types of faces. In Isaiah 6 we read, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, the types of angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's the same description that we're reading here in Revelation chapter 4 that comes out of Isaiah chapter 6. And the eyes that are everywhere, that are, again, they're a metaphor. It's not that these are literal creatures with eyes all over them, but it's a description of, of an unceasing vigilance, of an ability to see, uh, of, of the transcendence of God. They had faces as a lion and an ox and an eagle and a human being. And again, that could represent various things, but I think it represents the whole of creation, the noblest and the swiftest and the strongest and the wisest of creation that worships God. And these represent, these elders and these uh, cherubim and these uh, four creatures, they represent the highest order of angelic beings that lead in worship and judgment. And emanating from the throne of God is thunder and lightning. And it reminds us of the scene at Mount Sinai when the law was given and there were peals of thunder and there was blistering lightning. 
And, and throughout Scripture and throughout Revelation and throughout the judgment of God, the moments of the judgment of God, uh, they are described in the sense of thunder and lightning. There's a sense of the awesome power of God. Once when I was running in, uh, in, on holiday in Florida, I was running along the beach, and this was a few years ago, and, uh, and Florida is known for its tremendous thunderstorms. Uh, not like we get here. These are like proper thunderstorms with thunder and lightning and the blackening sky. And, and you can count and you can hear the, the, the peals of thunder and you can feel it coming nearer and nearer. And I thought it'd be kind of nice to run along the beach and enjoy a little bit of the rain and the weather. But as the thunder came nearer and the peals of thunder got louder and closer together and the lightning started to shoot out of the sky, all of a sudden I felt like electricity almost going underneath my feet. I literally jumped off the beach. And all of a sudden it was not so romantic to run along the beach <laughs> and to enjoy this weather and, oh, what a great thunderstorm. I was out of there. I was off that beach faster than you could say, Help! <laughs> so um, it was something. There was something awesome about when it comes near the, the ferocity of a thunderstorm, the the peals of thunder, the lightning, and 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 John describes this blistering power of God. Yes, the throne room of God is beautiful. It's awesome. It is. It is like jewelry. It is like the rainbows in the sky. But there's something of power here as well. There's something of might here. And Caesar might say that he is mighty. He might command that we bow down before his throne. He might declare himself uh, the Lord and the God, the everlasting king. But there is one who is above all of that. And his power knows no limits. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, as depicted by this thunder and this lightning, as John describes it, the power and the awe of the thunderstorm, and the declaration that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there is something other about God. He, the godness of God, the otherness of God. He is holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. And he was and he is and he is to come. He transcends time and space and place. And the angelic beings, they never stop worshipping God. They never stop declaring his worth and his power. Speaking of the worship of God, the otherness of God. And in verses 9 to 11, we read, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. He is the creator God. And whereas the Caesars of the day and those in political power were grasping power and building temples in their own likeness, and grabbing the crown, these elders, when they heard the four living creatures cry out, and when they heard the, the cry of worship and, and holiness, they took their crowns and they cast them down before the king of kings and the one who ultimately wears the crown. 
because they saw his worth. He is on the throne. He is worthy because he is the creator God. All things were made by him and they were made for him and they are held together in him. He has all power. His is the ultimate worth. And so John sets the scene (coughs) of heaven, the power, the glory, the awesomeness, the concentric circles of worshipping beings, the angels worshipping day in and day out and day and night, the incense of the saints lifting up and worshipping him and falling down and throwing down their crowns. And this sets the scene for chapter 5 and what is about to happen and what John sees. And we read that John's eye, as he looks at this heavenly depiction and this scene of heaven, his eye is drawn to something. And we see in chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, I saw a scroll with writing on it, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy? to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John's eyes are drawn to the right hand of God and he sees a scroll with writing On both sides, a scroll of paper wrapped up, and he sees it sealed. They used to seal the legal documents and uh, the wills and the um, royal edicts that would be sealed with seals, and and seven seals of wax, seven seals on this scroll. It's fully sealed. Nobody can open it. And uh, what is this scroll that is held up by God? It is and represents the decrees of God concerning his plans for mankind, for salvation, for redemption, and for judgment. It is God's holding of history. It is God's plan for mankind. It is the scroll that depicts his uh, plan for redemption, his plan for salvation, his plan for judgment. The cry of the churches was, who will judge our enemies? Who will help us? How long is the cry in Revelation? How long, God, do we have to put up with this world as it is? How long do we have to wait? And the scroll represents this royal edict, this holding of history in the hand of God, his plan and purpose for mankind, sealed up with seven seals, the fullness of God. In ancient times, these royal decrees, these royal uh, documents were sealed with, with wax, And they could only be unsealed by someone who was properly authorized to break the seal and open the scroll. Not anyone could do this. And also, by breaking the seal, you were enacting what was written on the scroll. So to uh, enact a legal document, the seals had to be split open. They had to be opened for the legal document to take and to become legal, to be enacted, to come into force. They had to be slit in that way. And the big question that is asked by this angel in a loud voice is who is worthy? Who is worthy to break the seals? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to implement God's plan of salvation and redemption and judgment? Who is worthy? 
And no one was found, John says. There was silence. As the angel asked the question, who was worthy to open this edict of God, this judgment and this revelation, who was going to do it? And there was silence. And there was nobody found in heaven. No angelic being could do this. As powerful as they are and as majestic as they are, as, as they worship before the throne room of God, John says nobody in heaven could do it. And then he says nobody on earth could do it. Nobody could open this scroll. Nobody could enact God's plan of salvation and redemption and judgment. Nobody. And nobody underneath the earth could do it. No demonic force, no satanic presence. The beast that we'll be encountering cannot do it, cannot open the scroll, does not have the authority to reveal and to implement and to enact and to bring into legal force God's plan of redemption and salvation to break the seals, to open the scroll, his unfolding of history that God holds in his hand, that John sees as he glimpses in towards heaven. He has the church in his hands, if you remember, the seven stars that he holds in his hands as he stands among the candlesticks. This is the God who holds the church in his hands and holds the universe in his hands and holds history and redemption and purpose in his hands. And the message to the churches then and the message to the church throughout the ages is that God is in control, that God is on the throne and that God has a plan of redemption and salvation for humankind. That God has a plan for history that is unfolding and he holds it in his hand. He holds the church in his hand. He holds the whole world in his hand. He holds history in his hands and nothing, nothing surprises him. But no one can be found who is worthy. And John weeps. Why does John weep? Because John knows. John knows as the church knows that they are in dire straits, that they need salvation. They need to be saved. They need judgment, uh, godly judgment upon these despotic powers on the earth. And he weeps for the state of mankind and he weeps for his own state, that there is no one. There's no one to save us. There's no one to release us. There's no one to unfold God's plan of salvation. And so he weeps. In verses 3 and 4, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. A lion and a lamb. See, the elders say, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis... Jacob comes to bless his children, the 12 tribes of Israel. He blesses each one of them. He speaks to each one of them. And he comes to Judah. And he says to Judah in the book of Genesis, he says, you, Judah, you are a lion's cub. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and he lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. 
And then Jacob goes on and in a prophetic utterance to this tribe of Judah, he says that in future the scepter and the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Genesis chapter 49, Jacob speaks to his uh, son Judah. He says, you're like a lion, Judah. And this scepter, this ruling scepter, it will not depart from Judah until it comes to the one to whom it ultimately belongs and the nation shall be his. This is the promise of a Messiah who will come down through the lineage of Judah and he will come through this tribe and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's what we see here as John looks and the elder speaks and who is able to open this scroll? Who is able to save and redeem mankind and speak out and enact the judgment of God? It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we have in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion. And there's an interesting scene that takes place with Aslan in the final chapter of the third book of the Chronicles, the voyage of the dawn treader. The children have just crossed the great sea and arrived at the foothills of Aslan's country. And there, C.S. Lewis writes, they saw something so white on the green grass that they could hardly look at it. They came on and they saw that it was a lamb. And the lamb welcomes the children ashore and bids them come and have breakfast. The children come and find a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. It's a scene reminiscent of the risen Christ after his resurrection having breakfast with his disciples on the beach. The lamb that was slain. And suddenly the lamb changes right before the children's eyes. His snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. And so Lewis portrays Aslan as both a lion and a lamb. And here we have the same happening that as the elder speaks out, he says, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah, the root of David, that's Isaiah chapter 11, uh, that's being referenced, the root of David, the one that would come from David's stump, the, the stump of Jesse, the root of David, the one that was before David and that was David's descendant, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then, John says, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb. I looked, I, I, I was told, look, a lion. I looked and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, in the center of the throne where God is. The lamb is God. The lamb of God. The lamb is God. The risen one, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he has seven horns and he has seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. He is the lamb that was slain. And then we read on. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain 
And with your blood you purchased men for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing in a cacophony of worship, a symphony of praise, as all of heaven and earth erupts to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. The question is asked by the elder, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer comes, he is worthy. He is, for 4 verse 11, he is worthy because he is the creator God. And he is worthy because he was slain, chapter 5 verse 9 and verse 12. He is worthy because he has redeemed us. He has brought us back with his blood. The lion of the tribe of Judah that was promised to whom the scepter would come the reign of God, the sovereign one, the Messiah that was promised. He's here, John says. He is risen. And he is the lamb that was slain. We are reminded of Isaiah 53, that promise of Isaiah, the pro prophecy of Isaiah, that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And John uh, the Baptist, as he looked at Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And in this heart of ultimate reality that John sees, for a persecuted church and a people who are oppressed, John saw a Savior who still bears the marks of suffering, a Lamb that was slain, yet one who has conquered death, the lamb is not slumped in defeat. He has seven horns and seven eyes, a symbol of power and strength and royalty. The lion and the lamb, the conquering lamb, the conquering lion. And this is Jesus who said to John as he fell down in fear and in trembling, he said, do not be afraid because I was dead, but now I am alive and I hold the keys of death and hell. And Peter reminds the early church, he said, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so we have here, as we said, the, the scene of heaven, chapter 4, the, the drama that unfolds in chapter 5, the unsealing of the scroll, the redemptive plan of God of salvation, and the one that is fulfilled through the lion of the tribe of the Judah, of the lamb that was slain, who is Jesus Christ. We see the throne in all of its beauty. We see the jewel-like uh, presence of God. We see the rainbows shining. We see the glass of sea we see uh, the glass of crystal. We see the seven lamps 
We see the radiance and the glory, but we see also essence of the power of God, the thundering and the lightning and the trembling and the falling down and the casting down of crowns. And we see the holiness and the awesomeness and the otherness of God Almighty, the throne above all thrones, the King above all kings. And John reminds his listeners as he shares this vision to the early church and to the church throughout the ages that God is sovereign, that God is on the throne. His scepter will last forever. It will never be returned. And he rules and he reigns over every power and every dominion and every authority. And he has a plan. And there is a scroll. And there is a history that is written and a plan that is revealed. And the one who is worthy to open the scroll and to reveal its contents and to implement its purposes is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God. And it's the one who was slain and has purchased men for God. One who is worthy has been found, heaven declares. And all of heaven and all of creation are worshipping him. And this, says John, this is spiritual reality. And the question that we ask ourselves is, will you join in? Will you join in with the worship of heaven and earth? Will you join in with the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the angels and the thousands and the ten thousands and all of creation and those in the sea and those under the sea? Will you join in? Will you bow down to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Will you join the heavenly chorus? Will you surrender your life? Will you throw down your crown? Because the chief end of man, as the Westminster Catechism reminds us, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what you were made for. You were made to worship God. You were made to worship God. You were made to encounter him and to submit to him. And so Paul says to the Romans, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is what you were made for. Will you bow down and will you worship the king? Will you give your life to Jesus Christ because of his plan, this plan of redemption and salvation and judgment? He is worthy. He is worthy. I'm going to ask the band to come and join me. We're going to respond this morning in worship. And the greatest act of worship that you can do is to bow down and to cede your life and to surrender to God. And to say, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want you to save me from my sins and to cleanse me. Father, we pray this morning that as we have a glimpse of this heavenly reality, that our eyes would be opened our spirits stirred, our hearts softened, Lord God, that we might respond and join in. We might bow down and worship. We might give you the worth that you are due. You are worthy because you are the creator, God. You are worthy because you were slain. You are worthy, God, because uh, you redeemed us and you fulfilled the plan of God and you are on the throne as we worship you now, God. Receive our praise and honor and glory. And if there is anyone here, God, that needs to cede their life to you, to bow down, to say, Jesus Christ, come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my King. Forgive my sins. I pray, God, they would do it right now. They would give their life to you right now. God, cede their life to you right now. And each one of us, God, to know that you are on the throne, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and there is no end to your reign, and you are coming again. And we praise you and we worship you and we honor you. Let's stand together.
and uh, worship God as we sing.